It is good to be here once again with you now. Today being September 11, we all of those of you who were alive uh, and, and were aware of what was going on at that time in your life will never forget those dates, or that date rather, and the events that took place. And uh, so as always, we think, and I personally thank God for all those, uh, the first responders um, every time we get to this time of year. Both of my brothers are firemen in Montgomery, Alabama, and um, uh, there's, I mean it, I just am grateful for those there. We just recently lost one of our own here in Tallahassee just last night, one of our uh, firemen, EMTs, and uh, his family, young man, young children, and I want to be uh, ever mindful of those that every day um, uh, wake up and say, I'm going to serve today, and it may cost me. And uh, so they do this so that others might um, uh, live, uh, et cetera. So keep those uh, um, in your mind as we, uh, as we move forward. Now, we are starting a new series today, and that series is called The Apostles' Creed. As you have noticed over the years, we get really creative with our titles of sermon series. So when we make our way through the book of Romans, we call it Romans. When we make our way through the book of James, we call it James. And so we're going to make our way through The Apostles' Creed, and so this series is going to be entitled The Apostles' Creed. Now, some of you may say, what in the world is this thing called the Apostles' Creed? Others of you are saying, it's about time we finally got to the Apostles' Creed. If you grew up like I did, I grew up in a more liturgical church, and I use that term, there's liturgy in every church, but I use that term, I think, more of a formal liturgy. I think more of uh, things that we did routinely. We can, and reciting the Apostles' Creed was something we did every single week. And my father, the assistant pastor, was usually the one who would lead us in that. He would come to a point in the service and he would say this, Christian, what do you believe? And then we all would recite in unison. Now, in preparation for this series, we read a wide variety of versions of the Apostles' Creed. And I thought there was only one, because that's the one that we said every week. And if you remember the word thence. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. You can't find that anymore. Nobody speaks like that, evidently, any longer. And so uh, we've got one that we think is, is, uh, is very good. We're going to recite it together at the end of this sermon. Uh, but we've got one that we're going to recite over and over again as we make our way through this series. Now, the question comes up, why in the world would we make our way through the Apostles' Creed? Please hear this. The Apostles' Creed is from the past, it is not relegated to the past. It is certainly from the past. It is not just for the past. It is for right now today. And I would even make the claim that it might be more relevant today than at any other time in American church history. Why do I say that? Because here's what the Apostles' Creed does. It lays out for us the essential doctrines of the church. So for this series, for the most part, we're going to forget about being Presbyterian with the little p, and we're going to focus more on being Christian with the capital C. And we're going to look at the church. What does the church believe? What are the essential, uh, essential doctrines that we have? So that we can seek unity in the essential doctrines, and then we cannot sweat the non-essential doctrines. So we do want to seek unity, but hear me, we have to seek unity around those things which ultimately matter. And if we cannot agree on the Apostles' Creed, I will say this, I can't call you my brother or sister in Christ. 
These are the essential doctrines. What it means to be truly Christian is found right here. Now, where did the Apostles' Creed come from? Contrary to its name, it was not written by the apostles. It was written long ago, as early as the second century. We have documents in which the church is using the Apostles' Creed. It's circulating around in various forms. We think that the most often used, or was most oftenly used, rather, in baptisms in the early church. And so they would ask a series of questions. In essence, what do you believe? And they would affirm these statements that would eventually come to be known as the Apostles' Creed. But this is not something that got just sort of put together in the 6th century or 7th century. It goes way, way back. The purpose that it serves, in many ways, is not just a summary, although it does serve as a purpose of a summary. It really serves as a guide Please get that in our minds. This Apostles' Creed is a guide to us about what it is that we must believe. So as we make our way through this series, ask yourself this question over and over and over again. Do I believe this? Now, the purpose of this series is that we want people to know the essential doctrines of the Christian faith. What is the result of the series? If you're a note taker, you can hopefully write these three things down, get to the end of the series, and hopefully we've accomplished these things. If you can't do this, then we have failed you as teachers in this series. Number one, we want to think biblically about these essential doctrines. These are not just doctrines that we pull out and we say, we like the way it sounds, it looks good on paper, it certainly sells well in a reference book. These are doctrines that must matter in our day in and day out living. So number one, the result is we want to think biblically about these essential doctrines. Number two, we want to discern the difference between the essential versus non-essential doctrines. There are some important doctrines in the church that matter but they are not essential, meaning that we can disagree respectfully, lovingly, kindly, warmly. We can go our separate ways when it comes to those particular doctrines. They may be important, but they're not essential. How do we know the distinction and the difference between those two? I've used this one many, many times before in the past. I have a very dear friend who is a pastor here in town. He is a pastor of another church, a different denomination than ours. We are Presbyterian, they are Baptists. We were together uh, before one of the uh, um, uh, uh, women's pregnancy uh, banquets uh, downstairs. We were praying, and uh, this gentleman uh, who was actually the speaker there was asking uh, this, my friend and I about this, and, uh, and he started poking fun of our differences. And I said, it's okay, I, I, this brother right here, he'll be in heaven, he'll just be tending our garden. <laughs> and without missing a beat, he, he very quickly said this, of the past Baptist pastor, he said, yeah, that's because we believe in water. Okay, we can have fun, and you rightfully should laugh uh, at, at Christian humor. But when we get to the essential doctrines, if you don't think that Jesus is God, now we have a real problem. There are essential versus non-essential doctrines, so we want to seek unity in the essential doctrines while all the while embracing diversity. So one, think biblically about the essential doctrines. Number two, discern the difference between the essential versus non-essential doctrines. And then finally, number three, at the end of the series, we hope that you can embrace the larger evangelical church. You know, my greatest frustrations in coming from the city where I came from previous to, to coming to Tallahassee, large city, more megachurches in that one city per capita than any other city in the world. 
One of my greatest frustrations there was that the people of God constantly competed with one another. Oh, you go to so-and-so's church. You mean the Jesus' church where so-and-so happens to serve? Oh, you, you, their music there, they are incredibly talented. Yes, enjoy it. Soak it up. Worship well. I'm telling you, there were Christians, genuine Christians, those who had surrendered their life over to the Lordship of Christ who would rejoice when churches began to fall. That is sick, and it is evil. Now, do you remember when Jesus one time looked at Peter, who was a believer, not fully mature yet, not understanding everything that he needed to understand, but he was a follower of Jesus. One time, Jesus looks at him and says, Get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter was being used as a believer in that moment for evil purposes. And that can go on in the church as well. Genuine, Jesus-loving, spirit-filled, God-honoring Christians can be used by the evil one in any given moment. So we want to embrace the larger evangelical church, not throw darts at the larger evangelical church. Please hear me. Please hear me. Uh, When it is appropriate, I will indeed address things uh, publicly in regards to gross and heinous um, uh, theological teaching from uh, from other places. I will. Um, But by and large, I hope what you hear from me is we want to embrace the larger evangelical church. If we can agree on the Apostles' Creed, then I'm going to put my arm around you and call you brother. And I may tell you that you're being foolish in other areas of your Christian pilgrimage, but I'm going to put my arm around you and say, let's go. Let us attack the gates of hell. And let us be used by the Almighty God. Because I am not foolish enough to think that 100% of my doctrine is correct. Now, if I knew what was incorrect, I'd correct it. But I'm not naive enough, nor foolish enough, nor arrogant enough to believe that everything that I hold to is absolutely truth and that there's no chance that I'm in error anywhere. That's silly. So we want to embrace the larger evangelical church and we want to hold firm to what these essential truths are. Do not back down from these. Do not make a big deal of these. So hopefully at the end of the series, we'll be able to do that very thing. Last little thing on that uh, that statement is this. Um, I know that there is a tendency for us to believe that when it comes to the broader um, evangelical church, um, um, uh, and and even maybe not even evangelical when it comes to the broader church, we, we have come to this conclusion at times that if we're going to actually seek unity with one another, then we're going to have to sacrifice some measure and level of truth. And what I'm here to tell you is in this series right here, we're, we're trying to show us, um, we don't want to sacrifice anything of the essential. We, what do we want to be centered around? It's around these essential things. So think of it like marriage. A marriage is not 50% husband's all in, 50% the wife is all in, and together they make 100%. We believe marriage is 100% from the wife, she's in, 100% from the husband, he's in. They both give 100%. And then by the grace of God and the skin of your teeth and the Holy Spirit moving in your life, you can actually make it. So we want to be here. We want to be 100% in on the truth. 
And we want to be 100% in on embracing the diversity of the church as well. And hopefully at the end of the series, we'll be able to do that. Now, what in fact is a creed? We all bow down to a cultural creed of some sort. A creed just simply is this. It is a set of beliefs or aims which guide someone's actions. It is a set of fundamental beliefs that we adhere to. It is most often put into some form of writing so that it's in front of us. Now, a creed is used almost exclusively in the modern day and age in America today to refer to a religious system of fundamental beliefs. It's not limited to that in its definition, but that's what we're referring to. What is a creed? It is a, it is a, it is a set of fundamental beliefs that we all buy into and say, yes, that is what I believe. Now, this is hopefully what you'll hear over and over and over again in this series and probably is the central driving theme, if you will, of the entire series. We believe is more important than I believe. We believe is more important than I believe. Go, I, 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 I invite you, go anywhere that you want in Tallahassee, any restaurant, in any business, anywhere, and just ask someone what is it that they believe. And you will find a variety of, of uh, thoughts, of uh, belief systems, etc. You're, you're gonna, it is all over the spectrum. Now, here's what I love about living in America. We are all free to believe whatever it is that we want to believe. And we should not fear any level of persecution, um, et cetera, from the government. Love that. It's fantastic. And it makes it so much easier to talk to people about spiritual things. But I believe has become so important to the average American and our radical individualism that I believe is actually now associated with truth. Well, no, it's not. It shouldn't be. It's just that I believe. I can believe in truth, but I can also believe in some really weird things that are not so true. If you happen to be one who does not believe that we landed on the moon, I say this with all respect to you. I just think that you're half out of your mind. And yet there are people to this day who do not believe that we landed on the moon. Just because we believe in something doesn't make it true. However, when you find historically throughout the history of the church saying, this document right here was written, they've affirmed it in the 100s, they've affirmed it in the 200s, affirmed it in the 300s, and affirmed it all the way up until now, the 2000s, when we say we affirm this, the church over and over and over again, across denominational lines said we affirm these truths, we would be wise to pay heed to that. We believe is more important than I believe because I can be deceived on many things. However, the Holy Spirit works throughout his church, throughout the ages, and he brings clarity where clarity needs to be brought. We believe is more important than I believe. I was at a football game here recently, and I watched this student body with great passion, with great energy, and, and probably even with some sincerity of thinking, got the chant going. And you know the chant that I'm talking about. I believe. I believe. 
I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. And the, I mean, the student section's erupting, and it's great. And the band gets in, the cheerleaders are going nuts over there, and parents in the crowd are saying, I believe. Here's the problem. It was 35 to 3. <laughs> I love the passion. I love the energy. I, I'm telling you, you, you're not believing truth right now. Could you come back? I guess it's theoretically possible. It was not very likely when you're getting kicked like that in the entire first half, and then they came out in the second half and got kicked just as bad. So it ended up being 60 to 20. But I believe, what is it that we believe? What is belief? Now, just very briefly, this is an introduction. We're not looking at anything in depth this morning that will come as the weeks make their way on. But what is it that, uh, that we say we believe in? Um, faith. Now, the scripture points out two types of, or I'm sorry, uses faith in two different ways. There is the faith, and then there is our faith. The faith is described to us in a few different passages. Jude 1, there's only one chapter. Verse 3 says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about the, our common salvation, I find it, found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. What is the faith that he's referring to? He's referring to the system of belief, a summary of Christian thought and belief. It was given to us by the apostles in their teaching. It was affirmed throughout the church. It was guarded and protected. It is the faith that is being handed to them. It is the faith that we hope to instruct everyone here um, in. We do that in a variety of ways. We do it through small groups where you're instructing one another. There's discussion, etc. We do that through formal classes. We do that through Sunday morning preaching. The faith is what is the Christian faith. Paul says it again in Galatians. They, o- uh, uh, they only were hearing it and said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. This is referring in reference to Paul who was in, uh, in the business of stoning Christians, of killing Christians until the great light came, hit him. Jesus speaks to him, turns his heart around, and now he and does no, longer, uh, no longer fights against the faith, but fights for the faith. Mentions it one more time to another, another pastor, a younger pastor, Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Here he's referring to the entirety of the system of Christian thought, doctrine, etc. The way a Christian lives, conducts, uh, believes, etc. It's called the faith. Then there is your faith, my faith, our faith. And the best place in the world to go to see this, we could walk in many different places in the Scripture, the best place to go is Hebrews chapter 1. Now, because I've memorized this in the old NIV, I just can't read it in any other translation. But Hebrews 11.1 1 says this, Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Many theologians have pointed out rightly that this, we should resist taking this as an absolute definition of faith, and we should view this more rightly as a description of faith. What does faith look like, and then how does it operate? And so he starts out this chapter, faith is being sure of what we hope for, and it's certain of what we cannot yet see. 
And then he goes on a description, putting person after person after person, giving us a, a timeline, if you will, of all of the scriptures of people who had an opportunity to believe something that God had said. They had an opportunity to either believe it or to not believe it. To believe it would mean to put yourself in a position where I'm going to, to act in obedience to what God has called me to. To unbelieve or to, to not believe it would be to say, I'm not going to do what God has asked me to do because I just don't trust that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. But here's what faith is not. Faith is not passive. Faith is active. Faith is putting yourself on a pathway of obedience because you are convinced in your mind, have been moved in your heart that you must tell, tell, tell your will. You must move in the direction that God has called you to move, even though you don't yet know what the result is going to be. What is it that we believe? What is it that we have faith in? Oh, please hear this. Faith is not about believing a certain outcome will occur. Faith is about believing that a God is going to be true to who he says he is. How do you as a family deal with the fact that your husband, your father, has been sacrificially giving himself over to people for years and years and helping others escape fires and bringing folks back to life and, and, and then they're just gone in a car wreck? How do you deal with that? You don't have faith in a certain outcome. You have faith to believe, God, you have to be you to us right now. Because if you're not you to us right now, we are not going to make it. And so what am I going to do as an act of faith? I'm going to continue to pursue you. I'm going to get up. I'm going to read. I'm going to pray. I'm going to put myself in, in, in the body of Christ. I'm going to reach out and listen. I'm going to feel free to emote. I'm going to come to you with my anger and my frustration because I know that you, God, can handle it. Faith is not belief in a certain outcome. It is Trust that ultimately God is who he says he is. And I don't always agree with this particular theologian, but this is a great quote from Karl Barth. He says this, faith is trust in the divine faithfulness. Faith ultimately is trust in God's faithfulness. Not that it's all going to work out the way that I want it to work out. I had to come to grips with this several years ago as we were battling a certain physical illness. And I got, come, had to come to the place, and I uh, can say eventually the Lord did bring me there. It was a painful process, but I had to come to a place where I'm not believing that my or my loved one's body is going to be restored to health. I come to the place where I just believe that God is going to be faithful no matter what happens to my or someone else's body. He will give me the grace to live life, not just survive life, but to thrive in life. Soren Kierkegaard, I think, sums this up the best as we are inching towards the end here. He says, as you have lived, so have you believed. See, belief is moving forward. Belief 
saying I believe is saying that I agree and I will move in this direction. I believe is not just simply an intellectual assent to a set of facts. Belief is moving in a particular direction, even though I don't have a guarantee that what I want is going to happen. Belief, at the end of the day, is trusting. It is, it is accepting. It is embracing who God is based on what he has said. Let me say it again. Belief ultimately, or, or trust, faith is ultimately, belief in who God is based on what he has said. And if you have not yet come to the place in your spiritual pilgrimage where you're finding it very, very challenging to believe that God is good, that day is coming. Not because God gets excited about that, because life is hard. And Jesus gave us a promise. In this life, you're going to have trouble. But take heart. Because I've overcome the world. He goes on to say, I'm telling you, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. Now, you're going to have moments in your life in which you're going to feel like, yeah, right, God. You're never going to leave me or forsake me. It is going to be so unbelievably painful. But belief is moving in the direction of God once again, even though I am angry with him, frustrated with him, confused, bewildered maybe even about life. Belief is moving towards the person of God because I'm going to choose to believe that what he says about himself in his word is true. And if it's true, I'll walk. See, when the church throughout the, uh, the ages have said, I believe to start out this Apostles' Creed, what they're not just simply saying is this, yeah, I think there's some facts that are true in what we're about to say. What they're saying is, and the rest of what we're about to say, I believe I I'm going to alter my life, I'm going to orient my life such that I'm pursuing the person of God as if all these things are true. Can I ask you a question? Sincerely, it's a rhetorical. What do you believe? Based on where it is that your mind has seen to be true, based on what your heart has experienced, what direction is your life moving in? Is it moving in a Godward direction that you're saying, God, I, I want to pursue you. I want you to use me in whatever manner you choose, wherever you call me to go, whether that's in medicine or whether that's in law or business or education, whatever your field may be. Do you believe something? Is it so compelling that you have given your life over to it? Or are you still playing around with some intellectual thoughts? Please don't hear condemnation on my part. There really is none. What I believe is this. I believe that God is so great, so satisfying, so good, so righteous, so holy, that if you will taste, you will see how good he is. And if you will surrender the controls of your life and pursue him with a reckless abandon, regardless of the circumstances in your life, you will experience something that you can't find anywhere else in all of life. I really believe that because I have really experienced that. And I got plenty of stories on the other end of when I have not believed that 
when I have walked away from him. And he's been patient. He's given me some room. And then he's chased me down. Over the next several weeks, we'll unpack what it is that we believe. It's God. It's Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit. It's the church. It's him coming again.